I was recently uh, talking to a friend of mine who also happens to be pregnant, and she's in the corporate world, and we were talking about just all the oddities um, and how your life and your body start to radically change, and, and she was sharing that we both share this, this thing where we've started getting out of breath whenever we speak, so when she's giving presentations, she started asking, does anyone have any questions as a way for her to catch her breath? So if I ask today if anyone has any questions, <laughs> Feel free to answer if you want, but there's no expectation there. <laughs> Anyways, as I was uh, at my little UCC college in North Carolina, nestled among the magnolia trees and the wisteria, I began my study that would lead me here to be a pastor as I was a religion and philosophy major. And in all the ways that are unique to co small colleges, or at least that I think are unique to small colleges. I was supported and mentored by an amazing professor, Dr. Sang. And Dr. Sang read almost every college paper that I ever wrote. He would have me to his office. Uh, his door was always open, whether it was a matter of scholarly interest or, or whether I was having some sort of existential personal crisis. He was always there to sit and to listen uh, to my thoughts and my wonderings. And it was Dr. Sang who taught my Hebrew Bible and my New Testament classes in college. And at the beginning of every semester, he would write on the board one question that lingers in my mind to this day every time that I opened scripture. He would write, what is the context of the text? This question takes us all back to middle and high school when we thought about the who, the what, the where, the when, the why, and the for whom of primary source material. We ask who wrote it, what kind of writing is it, when in history and where in location was this text written, why was it written, and for whom, for what audience was this text written. Hopefully, we use some of these same principles when we read our newspapers or when we engage with the media, though in today's world, who knows? But these questions are as important when looking at ancient texts as they are when we're looking at modern ones. We don't know everything about the Bible, that's for sure. We don't know about all of its books and their authorship, but there are some things that we do know. And within our scripture today in the book of Hebrews, we know that this is a Deuteropauline text, which means that it's something that's written in the tradition of Paul, but not by Paul's self. Scholars as early as Origen, who lived 185 to 254, identified Hebrews to be the work of some other author, though their identity is not known. While called a letter, Hebrews is actually a sermon. It was a sermon that was intended to teach and inspire, hopefully as Sesame sermons do today. And the title of this short homily reflects its audience, Hebrews. It's a book primarily written for a Jewish audience, or an audience that identified as Jewish, but was becoming part of this early Christian movement. Given clues within the text, we can speculate that this is a second generation of followers trying to make sense of where they're, whether to keep their Jewish roots or what to keep from their Jewish roots as they become more and more Christian. 
Okay, does anyone have any questions? <laughs> Good. So from such a little book of the Bible, the words blood sacrifice show up an alarming amount, or an amount that I found alarming when I first encountered Hebrews. But this is where I and, and folks often misread Hebrews, taking this talk of sacrifice and trying to fit it into our modern lens. Hebrews is written for an ancient Jewish people for whom temple sacrifice was an enormous part of their ritual and religious practice and their culture. Hebrews is giving a different way, starting, stating that God does not demand our sacrifices because Christ shows us another way, a less transactional way to be in relationship with God. Hebrews is a guidebook for early Jewish Christians then, and it's a guidebook for us now, for we too find ourselves living in a transactional world. And what is God calling us to? What is God calling us to is a breaking free from this transactional way of living, the ways we benefit and participate in transactional culture. And God is calling us to reimagine what it means to be one body of faith, entering into relationship, understanding, and celebrating the diversity that God has given us. Let mutual love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them, those who are being tortured as though you yourselves were being tortured. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorified in your sight, for you, O oh God, are our rock, and you are our redeemer. As we kick off this Be the Church campaign, this week we're exploring what it means to embrace diversity. And these words from Hebrews talk a little bit about who makes up that diverse community. But there are lessons from biological communities that share this message as well, that have things to show us and teach us. Listening to an interview with author and professor Robin Wall Kimmer, who wrote the book Braiding Sweetgrass and Gathering Moss, Professor Kimmer speaks of the wisdom of nature when she shares this story of how at 18 years old, she was so proud to be entering into college. She was going to forestry school, and she shared with her professors and her fellow students that she was there because of this one burning question. She wondered why asters and golden rods look so beautiful together. She thought that in this truth must lie some universal knowledge. 
These flowers are amazingly vibrant. They're chrome, yellow, and bright purple. And the two plants can more often than not be found twining around one another as they reach towards the sun. I can imagine a few snickers and stares of amazement. She was told by her professors that her question was not a scientific one, but an artistic one. And if she wanted to know the answer, she better drop out of forestry school and become an art student instead. Demoralized, she was told that her question was not one of science, that science demands we set aside our emotions and our aesthetics. But she would find out there's a very good biological explanation for why those plants grow together. It's a matter of aesthetic and it's a matter of ecology. See, these complementary colors of purple and gold together are opposites on the color wheel. They're so vivid that they actually attract far more pollinators than if the true grew apart from one another. So each of those plants benefit by combining its beauty with the beauty of the other. Because these plants embrace diversity, they thrive. So often, when we think of the way that things evolve, we think of resources and limiting factors. We think of materials that some have access to while others go without. We think of competitive exclusion, where the strong thrive and the weak die. But species, at least, are more adaptive than that. It's like that quote from one of my ch favorite childhood movies, Jurassic Park, that life does indeed find a way. Life's incredible in its desire to continue to persevere and persist. And it can be seen in Darwin's finches on the Galapagos Island, who until recently were faced with very little competition in their island existence. I imagine them as like these finches who are like wearing Hawaiian shirts and enjoying like a, a <laughs> island side beverage, but in some way that's true. They were finches who had faced, until recently, faced little competition and they enjoyed the biggest and juiciest seeds on the island and they thrived. Until in the early 2000s, another competitor made its way onto the island, another type of finch, better adapted for eating this particular seed. Now, would Darwin's iconic finches be victim to the principles of evolution that they helped to model? While these finches, like all of life, were subject to this theory, they are still very much alive and well in a few generations. The finches' beaks have become smaller, allowing them to specialize in a different form of seed eating, allowing for this new and old species to coexist together. For some of you, maybe you had a student from Glenbard West, or maybe you and yourself were lucky enough to go on the trip to the Galapagos Islands last summer. This might be old news, and you've already seen this up close and personal. But for those of us gathered here in this church this morning, whether we've seen the principle in person or not, the lesson is one much larger than biology. It's a lesson of theology. Through those with the asters and the golden rods, with the Galapagos finches, God is teaching us a lesson. 
My brother-in-law, Tim, who studies evolutionary biology, was talking to me earlier this week about a scientific theory that I think has something uh, to also do with biology and theology. It's called the diversity stability hypothesis. When, and he made sure to make a point. He's like, and when we say like theory or hypothesis in science, Kendra, we mean it's fact. <laughs> he was very adamant. He's like, this isn't like some fake news or something. <laughs> but he said with this diversity stability hypothesis or theory, it's a theory that states that the more diverse a community of organisms are, the more resilient they are. The more diverse they are, the more resilient they are, both to natural and human-caused change. And the more diverse the community, the higher the productivity. Of course, in our own capitalistic society, corporations have taken a hold of this. And within the business world, this principle is often called organizational interdependence. You can Google it. There's a bunch of articles on Forbes. And Peter Senge from MIT Sloan School of Management also writes on this concept. I did a deep dive for this sermon. <laughs> it was great. Um, but within our passage from Hebrews today, getting back to the Bible, in our passage from Hebrews today, we hear this call to be in solidarity with those who have a vastly different lived experience than us. We are called to embrace diversity, and not because of its economic return or our productivity. We are called to embrace diversity because it is a gift from God, and together we are more beautiful than we could ever imagine alone. And because the diversity stability theory is as true for us as people of faith as it is for the natural world. And because as people of faith we hear this call as we heard in Hebrews today to let mutual love continue. Recognizing that our liberation, our salvation, is tied up in the breaking down of systems that segregate. Not to eliminate our differences, because it is our differences, like those asters and goldenrods, it's our differences that truly allow us to thrive. After all, we don't want some purple or some yellow. We want to be together. Together, we are exquisite. By existing together, we feed one another. We strengthen one another in a way that we never could on our own. Hebrews reminds us in living this way, the ways we act are changed. If we're letting mutual love continue, we can no longer abide while there are unjust criminal justice systems. If we are living in mutual love, we can no longer abide while some live in abundance, while others live in scarcity. We can no longer abide while folks are persecuted and tortured. We are called to live differently in our dependence on one another. Native activist Lila Watson says it this way. She says, if you have come to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is tied up with mine, then let's work together. Our liberation, our salvation is connected. Our ability to grow and thrive is tied. We are dependent on one another. So let us work together. 
Several years ago, when I was leading junior high youth fellowship, at the end of the night, I waited with everyone at the parking lot doors for parents to come by for pickup. And a youth and her friend who were visiting ran off into the dark sanctuary. (laughs) And so curious, because you never know with junior hires, curious, I followed them. From the recycling at the back, this youth eagerly grabbed our church's bulletin from the Sunday before, the bulletin that had been discarded. And as I stood at the back, giving them a little space, she read to her friend our church's open and affirming statement. She said excitedly, this, this is what church is about. And it is. And it is so, so much more than just words. It's how we make place on Sunday morning for everyone. The person in the pew who needs a place to sit in peace for an hour, for a break from a frenzied life. It's for the person who's been raised in a theology of exclusion, wondering where their place is in God's love. And here, here we make explicit that God's love, that this space and this table are set for everyone always without exclusion or exception. There is nothing that you have done or left undone that separates you from the love of God, belief or unbelief. We embrace diversity. Our faith calls us to engage our critical and our curious minds, and it lets us teach our children every Sunday to do the same, that faith and mind go together. We come to this place with a variety of beliefs and we settle in the love of God and the love of one another. We embrace diversity and we recognize the importance of making space for groups like Oasis and Glen Ellen Voices of Equity who create safe space for queer folks. And we say that while the institutional church has got it wrong, God's love has been ever present and we hope to be a living testimony of that love. When we join with members of our own church to do the hard work of learning about our white privilege in adult education settings, and as we join in conversations to look at the gun violence epidemic in our country, when we go and we march with the young men and women of Precious Blood Ministries in the back of the yards neighborhood, we are affirming that no one should have to walk alone in fear and we are embracing the diverse lived experience of others. And we hear God calling this holy work. Here at FCCGE, we are doing so much of that good work already. And yet, we have so much left to do. In one of my beloved TV shows, Parks and Rec, (laughs) we follow local government official Leslie Nope, played by Amy Poehler, attempting to make her community a little bit a better place. And I love how many gospel lessons are in this show, along with some good laughs and some words of wisdom. In one episode, Poehler, Leslie Nope says that it's easier to be brave when you're not alone. To make the change needed to reaffirm our diversity stability, to celebrate our asters and our goldenrods, to dare to dream big about how we can not only talk of God's love, but live that love. 
to live the words on the front of our bulletin in the actions that we embody. We need one another to do this work. It's easier to be brave when we're not alone. And in Hebrews, we're reminded that God is with us in this work. And who knows, in doing this work, maybe we are entertaining angels unaware. Amen.